Well, before we read the next section of the Sermon on the Mount together, I want to just take a moment to help you grasp something of the context that Jesus was teaching into here. Or imagine you're a first century Hebrew. You live in a village up on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee in a militarized zone. Everywhere you go, Roman soldiers are on the streets. It's been 70 years now since the Romans invaded and they are wreaking havoc on your society. Taxes are upwards of 80 or 90%. The economy is in crisis. Food is scarce. You're very much living hand to mouth. And the Romans, they're stealing land that's belonged to your family for generations. It's like on a daily basis, someone in your village comes right up against the oppression of the Roman Empire. And so, understandably, rebellion is simmering close to the surface. You've just had one of your friends, for example, join an insurgent group called the Zealots. They got their name from the zeal of Phineas in the book of Numbers in the Old Testament, who, if you know the story, killed thousands in the name of the Lord. Another friend has just joined the Sicarii, who were a splinter group of the Zealots. They carried small daggers beneath their cloaks, sneaking up behind unsuspecting Roman soldiers in crowded areas and slitting their throats before blending back into the crowd and disappearing. The Bible that you grew up hearing your rabbi read from in the synagogue every Saturday is full of stories of war and violence. You grew up hearing stories of how God saved your ancestors from the Egyptian oppressor and then the Babylonian oppressor and then the Assyrian oppressor and so on. But where's your God now? Same Bible holds out the promise of a coming Messiah and prophecy after prophecy from Isaiah, from Jeremiah, from Micah. They, they speak of a king who will rule not only over Israel, but over the whole world. And in so doing, usher in a glorious age of peace and prosperity. But it's been hundreds of years and this Messiah still hasn't appeared. Every few decades, a would-be Messiah appears on the scene, but it's always the same cycle. They rally an army, they weaponize, go to war, and are crushed by the Romans. Last time round, Rome crucified 6,000 of your fellow Jews on the road leading up to Jerusalem, and a chill runs down your spine just thinking about this. But then you hear that there's a new rabbi who's come to town. People call him Jesus from the town of Nazareth, which actually isn't all that far away from you. All sorts of theories flying around about who this guy is. Some even claim he's the Messiah himself. Uh, if truth be told, you're skeptical. You, you don't know about that. But you go along to hear him out. You show up and there are thousands of people already there. Jesus is sitting down on the side of a hill with a sea of Galilee down below. And he starts to teach. Somebody saying, you, you, you've kind of heard before from people who are really serious about the Torah. But a lot of what you hear is brand new information for you. And at first, you find it so incredibly compelling. I mean, Jesus speaks of creating a radical alternative society characterized by grace, compassion, forgiveness, generosity, 
and love. And as Jesus unpacks what it means to truly love others, you feel your heart more and more drawn to him. But then he says something that very much feels like a punch in the gut. There's this collective gasp as he utters these words, followed by a shocked silence. Out of nowhere, Jesus calls his followers to do one of the most counterintuitive things imaginable. Here's what he says, Matthew 5, verse 43. You've heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. You can imagine, ripple of approval spreading through the crowd. Jesus was very much on safe territory here, or at least so it seemed. I mean, this was a popular saying back in the day. In fact, it's one that we're probably pretty familiar with too. We perhaps recognize the first part of that quote because more than once Jesus said that the most important command in all of the Old Testament scriptures is the one that's found in Deuteronomy 6. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. And then immediately after that, it followed up with this quote from Leviticus 19, verse 18, love your neighbor as yourself. It's like love for God and love for your neighbor was central to Jesus' vision for how to be human, which is presumably why he concludes his brief manifesto of what life looks like in his kingdom with this command. It's as though he's saving the very best until last. If you remember, he's already addressed anger and lust, divorce, lying and resisting evil. And now, as the climax, he turns his attention to the command to love your neighbor, which, on the surface, seems pretty inspiring and inoffensive, doesn't it? Until you begin probing a bit. Until you begin asking questions to get to the bottom of what he is actually saying. I guess the obvious question to start with is, who exactly is my neighbor? Because don't forget, Jesus' people have been living under the thumb of oppressive military dictators for over 600 years. And for a persecuted ethnic minority, the question of who they were to love, or perhaps more pertinently, who they were permitted not to love, well, that was a burning issue. Most people uh, in Jesus' day said it was basically other Jewish people that they live by and like. That was kind of the working definition of neighbor back then. Hence, the second part of the quote here, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, the odds are you probably don't recognize the second part of this quote because it's not in the Bible. The leading theory is that over time, the command had been modified and tweaked to make it easier to obey until it worked its way into the list of official Jewish sayings. You know, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. Now, if you're sitting there wondering, what did Jesus make of all of this? Well, verse 44 leaves us in no doubt. And as we're about to find out, 
this is where it starts to get ever so slightly controversial. He says, you've heard the law that says, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Now look, if you're going to do your research and go back to Leviticus 19 and read the whole chapter, it's all about how to make peace with people you don't get along with. Now, there's not time to read it all now, but if you just back up one verse, it says, do not nurse hatred in your heart for any of your relatives. Confront people directly so you will not be held guilty for their sin. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against a fellow Israelite, but love your neighbor as yourself. So the immediate context in Leviticus is your fellow Israelite. But just a few verses later, it's expanded to also include foreigners who live in the land. Verse 33, do not take advantage of foreigners who live among you in your land. Treat them like native-born Israelites and love them as you love yourself. Why? Well, remember that you were once foreigners living in the land of Egypt. And so, in context, love your neighbor actually goes much wider than merely care for your fellow people. But that being said, Jesus here expands the command beyond anything anyone had ever imagined or dared to teach before. He says the love that God is commanding way back in Leviticus 19 is a love without boundaries. It's a love for your friends and your enemies, for people you hate and for people who hate you. Now, if you think that sounds difficult, just imagine how a first century Jew suffering under the brutal regime of Roman rule must have felt hearing these words. Loving our enemies has got to be one of the most challenging things that Jesus calls his followers to do. Which I guess begs the question, what precisely then does Jesus mean by love? Now, I think this is pretty tricky for us because of the limitations of the English language. I mean, I love fresh coffee, I love chocolate, I love a good crime drama on TV, I love Everton, and I love my wife and my two sons. You see, the same word covers all of those different things. It's a preference, it's something you like, but most of all, it's a feeling, it's an affection, it's an emotion that happens to you. I'd rather suggest Jesus means something very different here. Like, if you remember back to the verses we looked at a couple of weeks back, do you have warm feelings of affection towards the person who slaps you in the face or steals the shirt off your back or demands that you carry a heavy load for a mile out of your way? But of course you don't. So Jesus isn't talking about a feeling that you've got to try and muster up towards people. No, he's talking about an attitude. 
He's talking about a mindset, and more than that, an action that flows from that mindset. It's loving as an act of your will. A writer called Dallas Willard describes it as bending your will to the good of another person, even if it's ahead of your own. It's when you place their well-being ahead of your own, even if it comes at great cost to you. Another writer, Scott McKnight, speaks of it as a rugged commitment to be for another person's good and to partner with God in loving them into the person that God created them to be all along. Meaning that to love your enemy isn't to turn a blind eye to their behaviour. It's not to tolerate things that God doesn't tolerate. It's not to look at adultery, lying, oppression, injustice, cheating, manipulation, and say, well, no big deal. Let's just be nice to one another. Let's just accept one another. That's not what Jesus is saying. Often, the most loving thing you can do is call out their behaviour as wrong and try to put a stop to it for them as much as for yourself. But returning to what we saw last time, never with violence, never with hatred, always with love. Which then leads to the third question, namely, how in the world do we do this? Now, one of the many things I love about Jesus' teaching is how he very quickly moves from the abstract to the concrete. And so very practically, he suggests at the end of verse 44 that we pray for our enemies. Just to say, I don't think he's suggesting praying down plagues on their head. I think he means for us to pray blessing on them. And if they're sin, by all means, pray for their repentance, their healing, for change, for transformation. But above all, pray for the good of your enemy. Some of you, you'll know from experience that one of the very best ways to deal with hate or anger or bitterness or hurt towards someone else is actually to pray for their well-being. And often, certainly not all at once, but gradually over time there's this release from that hate from that anger that bitterness that that churning on the inside but this doesn't come easy does it it still sounds pretty counterintuitive i mean nobody loves their enemies we bomb them we introduce economic sanctions we tweet about them we rant on facebook we gossip to our circle of friends we bad mouth them anything but love them. Which leads to the fourth question, why on earth would we do this then? I mean, what is the motivation? Well, take a look at verse 45. According to Jesus, here's why. He says, in that way, you'll be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. For he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. And so, number one motivation for doing this is that this is what God is like. Jesus looks out at creation and he makes a very simple observation. 
The farmer who is good and honest and loves God gets the exact same weather as a farmer who's a cheat, a liar and a God-hater. They, they both get the same rain and the same sun to grow their crops. It's like every good thing in creation is a gift from God and it's given to deserving and undeserving alike. And so there's something in the weather that at a very basic level reveals God's bountiful generosity. God doesn't give his gifts to people according to how they behave. Now, just to say, we do know from other things Jesus said that he does believe that his Father in heaven will at some point put all things right and will hold all humanity to account for how they behave. But at this moment, there's a whole lot of grace and generosity and kindness dished out to people regardless of how they behave. And Jesus draws a very powerful conclusion from this. He says, if that is what God is like, then what must the people of the kingdom be like? The implication is, we must be like our Father in heaven. It's like, I do not have the right to deny kindness and generosity to someone to whom God has chosen to show kindness and generosity. If I'm a genuine member of God's family, I do not have the right or the authority to treat someone as unloved when God has chosen to treat them as someone to be loved. That's the logic of these verses. It's like we prove that we are children of God by acting and behaving like our Father. It's not to earn his love, but it's to mimic his love. But that's not all. Jesus has two more reasons for loving our enemies. In verse 46, he goes on to say, if you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you're kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. Let's be honest. When we're with people who are like us and that we like, it can be challenging, but most of the time it's not all that hard to show love and kindness, is it? But that is not enough. That is way too easy. Everyone does that. And to drive home the point, Jesus claims that two of the most despised groups of people in his culture, tax collectors and pagans, even they manage to be kind to their friends. Incidentally, these two groups of people, tax collectors and pagans, if you remember, they were two of the groups that Jesus was regularly being criticised for mixing with. Jesus very much practised what he preached. And in so doing, absolutely scandalised his fellow Jews. For a first century Jew, these were the worst of the worst. However, I think today when we read these stories, we don't find it the least bit offensive, do we? 
quite the opposite. We sing songs celebrating the fact that Jesus was a friend of sinners. We love the fact that he mixed with Roman centurions, tax collectors, Samaritans and the like. It's like we have no emotional connection to that world and so we don't feel the shock and the scandal of this anywhere near as much as we should. So why don't you just think for a moment who the equivalent would be in our society maybe more specifically who would you find it hardest imagining Jesus loving today in your own life uh, are there individuals or groups of people that you would struggle to love listen as members of the kingdom of God we are not supposed to reflect how our society operates we are to reflect our father in heaven and so even though we may not feel love to an individual or to a group of people, we are still called to choose to love them just as God has chosen to love us. Which I think goes some way to explaining what Jesus says in verse 48. He says, but you are to be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now look. I think a lot of people misunderstand this verse by taking it completely out of context. For starters, it's not a standalone command. It's actually the climax of Jesus' teaching on loving our enemies. It also contains another one of these words that's really hard to translate. This word, perfect, speaks of maturity. It's talking about someone who's reached the point of completion in their growth and development as a human. And so really, in context, Jesus is saying that the end goal of your discipleship to him is to grow and mature into the kind of person who is like God. So if you want to plot where you are on the journey towards maturity, towards God-likeness, Actually, it's really easy. You just plot where you are in relation to your love for your enemies. The less you love your enemies, the more immature you are and the less like God you are. The more you love your enemies, the more mature and the more like God you are. Because for Jesus, love for enemies is the great litmus test. I might be wrong. I'm guessing this is probably what inspired John to write these famous words in 1 John 4. He says, Dear friends, let us continue to love one another, for love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God, but anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Dear friends, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love each other. No one has ever seen God, but if we love each other, God lives in us and his love is brought to full expression in us. Listen, there is something about 
intentionally stepping over some relational divide and choosing an attitude of grace and kindness and generosity and forgiveness for someone not only outside your circle, but someone you don't particularly like and who doesn't particularly like you too. When we choose to go against the grain of every human intuition that seems natural, and instead look with compassion and kindness and grace to our enemies, we are never more like God than we are in that moment. There is something about choosing to view a human being with dignity regardless of their behavior or what they've done to others or to me, show practical kindness to them. I'll tell you, when disciples of Jesus do that, it is utterly beautiful and it reveals the heart of God like nothing else imaginable. All of which sounds great in theory, doesn't it? But the fifth and final question is, can this actually work in the real world? Absolutely. Absolutely it can. And I think we are all living proof of the fact. Have a listen to how Paul puts it in Romans 5. He says, when we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we've been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved with the life of his son. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. How do we become friends of God? Through violence, through hate? No, through self-sacrificial, cross-shaped, suffering love. You know, over the last few weeks, I've been reading a lot of the writing of Martin Luther King Jr. And in all my reading, I haven't been able to get beyond this particular quote that I think brilliantly summarizes the message of Jesus here. He says this, to our most bitter opponents, we say, we shall match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. We shall meet your physical force with soul force. Do to us what you will and we shall continue to love you. We cannot in all good conscience obey your unjust laws because non-cooperation with evil is as much a moral obligation as is cooperation with good. Throw us in jail and we shall still love you. Bomb our homes and threaten our children, and we shall still love you. Send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our community at the midnight hour and beat us and leave us half dead, and we shall still love you. 
but be ye assured that we will wear you down by our capacity to suffer. One day we shall win freedom, but not only for ourselves. We shall so appeal to your heart and conscience that we shall win you in the process and our victory will be a double victory. Now there really are no two ways about it. These words are profound and deeply inspiring, aren't they? But don't forget, Martin Luther King Jr. died for this. And surely the events of the last couple of months shows that we have still got an incredibly long way to go. So does this work? Yes, but not always. Sometimes it will lead to pain. It will cause us to be misunderstood. It might even cost us our life. But even when it doesn't seem to be working, Jesus still calls us to live this way. This is not an optional extra. This is not some peripheral teaching on the side. This is absolutely central to being a follower of Jesus. We must always love our enemies. And so, as I start to wrap this up, let me ask you, who are your enemies? Be honest. Are you likely to be around people or in contact with people in the next week or so that you're going to find it incredibly hard to be with? Are you just trying to imagine someone, picture someone in your mind? Could be a work colleague someone where you live, a family member, someone at school. Whoever for you this is the issue, you, you can't stand them, they can't stand you. Well, you just ask yourself what you could do to show them love. What could you do that would be surprising and counterintuitive? How can you go about turning them from an enemy into a neighbour? into a friend. Now, please don't mishear me. I get that if it's someone who is dangerous or toxic or abusive, there are some people you, you can't do that with. It's safer to keep a distance. I don't know, perhaps to start off with, it's just a heart attitude. Maybe all you're ready for is saying a prayer for them. But the bottom line is, if you want to grow, if you want to mature to become like your Father in heaven, if you want freedom, then at some point you do need to respond to the call of Jesus here. By all means, stand against injustice and evil, but not from a place of hate and anger and bitterness, which our culture is so full of right now, isn't it? I tell you, when you stand from a place of bold, courageous, cross-shaped, sacrificial love, that is when things start to move. Now look, this is probably going to land in different ways for each of us. But whatever it looks like in your situation to show love, grace, kindness, forgiveness, just do that.
and see what happens. See what happens in you. See what happens in that relationship. And see what God chooses to do through it.